The envelope says official summons. Would you open it? An election year fundraising letter triggers outrage and questions of legality. We'll explore today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Our era of political coarseness and division, how will historians see us tomorrow? Pulitzer Prize winning author Doris Kearns Goodwin tells us how history may be able to help us get through our times today. Also, a breakthrough curriculum for Latino-Latina studies. Electric scooters swarm the streets of Texas big cities. Some see them as a public nuisance. Could they signal better times for Texas bicyclists? And the tale of the last town crier all today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. I'm David Brown. Senator Ted Cruz may be sensing a serious turning of the tide on the question of a matter Republicans recently wrote off as a foregone conclusion, namely the outcome of the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to serve on the nation's highest court. Only a few days ago, it seemed Republicans had the votes and his confirmation all but a fait accompli. Now, Senator Cruz has joined the ranks of a handful of other Republicans calling for a slowdown in the train barreling toward a confirmation vote. Yesterday, Cruz's senior Texas colleague in the Senate, John Cornyn, acknowledged the allegations made against Kavanaugh by California professor Christine Blasey Ford, who has now come forward to allege that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her at a party when the two were in high school in the early 80s, charges Kavanaugh vigorously denies. But Cornyn stopped short of calling for the Senate Judiciary Committee to hear testimony on the matter. Not so Senator Cruz, who now says the accuser should be allowed to testify before the panel. The Texas Tribune reports that Cruz's call has thrown the confirmation process into chaos. Cruz, as you likely know, is in a battle royale with Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's fighting to topple the Tea Party Republican. And Cruz faces some complaints over his own campaigning. We'll be talking about that momentarily. But first, an update on our top story from Monday. We're learning more about U.S. Border Patrol agent Juan David Ortiz and his confession that he killed four people in what authorities describe as a serial killing. Ortiz is currently being held on a $2.5 million bond. Texas Public Radio's Joey Palacios reports the news has shaken up the city of Laredo. The shops in downtown Laredo are a few blocks away from the border. Residents here, like Miguel Sanchez, who works at a t-shirt printing shop, say the murders are tragic. It was shocking. Uh, you don't really uh, hear that type of story here in Laredo often. At the Webb County Sheriff's Office, Chief Federico Garza provided a timeline of Ortiz's murders. All the victims were defenseless, and at one point Ortiz was able to gain their trust and then viciously shot them. Melissa Ramirez was killed on September 3rd. Claudine Loera on September 13th, Humberto Ortiz and an unidentified person were killed last Friday night or Saturday morning. All of them shot in the head and left on the side of the highway. Police were alerted when a woman escaped from Ortiz Friday night before his last two murders. Ortiz was arrested at a hotel. And what he was going to do, he was trying to commit uh, a suicide by cop. Uh, he was going to try to use his phone to make it look like it was a weapon. Webb County District Attorney Isidro Alaniz says Ortiz knew his victims through the sex worker and drug use communities and had been in contact with them several times. 
people want to know why did he do this and we are seeking to try to put the pieces together to figure out why and how come he targeted this certain community within Laredo. Ortiz has been placed on indefinite suspension by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Carla Provost is the National Chief of the Border Patrol. She says she doesn't want this to be a reflection on the entire force. These are horrific crimes and this was one rogue individual. Ortiz isn't the first Border Patrol agent to be arrested for murder in Laredo. Earlier this year, Agent Ronald Anthony Burgos Avilas was arrested for killing a woman and her one-year-old son. Near the downtown bus station, Laredo resident Alfredo Trinidad says the Border Patrol needs to look inward. They have to take a real serious this problem. And they got to check those workers. Um, they got to do something. They have to do something. The Border Patrol still has the support of other residents like Mary Helen Rojas Espina. She said in Spanish, the actions of one don't represent all agents. There's good people amongst them, right? People shouldn't be judgmental and that you blame all of them for what he did. Investigators are determining if Ortiz's charges should be upgraded to capital murder. Reporting for the Texas Standard, I'm Joy Palacios in Laredo. Over the weekend, a Twitter user posted a picture of the front of an envelope that contained a letter sent out as part of fundraising efforts for the Ted Cruz campaign. As you may have heard, however, the issue seems to lie more in what was printed on the outside of the envelope than what was actually inside. Now, I'm looking at a photo of a typical version of, of this envelope sent to us by a listener. It features in bold letters across the center, summons enclosed, open immediately. And in the top left-hand corner where it shows the sender, the words read, in this case, Official Kerr County Summons, Voter Enrollment Campaign Division, Ted Cruz for Senate 2018. Now, if you got such a letter, you might think you were being summoned to court. Or would you see right through it? Though the legality of this tactic is being hotly debated online, and largely if somewhat conspicuously along party lines, it would seem, it got us thinking, what can you put on a campaign mailer? Here to talk with us about the do's and don'ts is Kirby Goydell. He is professor in the Department of Communication and the Public Policy Research Institute at Texas A&M University. Professor, welcome to Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. So in this specific instance, the words official summons is used across the front. What's the lowdown on that? Is that okay? Um, well, it's it's uh, there, there are two answers. One is, is it ethical? Uh, in which case, this is highly deceptive. Um, and, and it's done for a, for a very clear reason. That is, when you're sending mailings out like this, uh, you want people to open the envelope. And this is a way to get them to open the envelope. There's a literature that suggests that this type of envelope is more likely to be open. So there is there is some work that's been done around getting voters to turn out and in terms of uh, encouraging people to participate in the process. And it says if it looks like it's an official document, people are more likely to open it and more likely to follow through. And so campaigns have adopted these types of strategies pretty widely in, 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 in trying to get people to 
mobilize to vote or to contribute money. Uh, what makes it legal is that it does say Ted Cruz from for Senate 2018. So there's that disclaimer. And then it also says that it's from Senator Ted Cruz. So so what they've done is they've uh, very carefully made sure that they're following uh, federal election law uh, in, in terms of sending this out. There is a question about state election law. But I think it's okay on on that grounds as well, at least as a legal issue. Huh, that's very interesting. So as a matter of state law, uh, it's an open question. And I think that some lawmakers, in fact, a uh, particular Democratic lawmaker who claims he wrote up, uh, he actually wrote the bill that would prohibit such language. He claims that this is not legal. But you say, if I understand you correctly, that according to federal guidelines, it's okay. Yeah, as long as you have the clear disclaimer that identifies uh, where the communication is coming from, whether it's clear in this case is, is open to interpretation. But typically when it comes to elections, we allow a lot of things in, in election ads. We allow, allow people to, to lie in election ads. We allow, allow people to say things that are not uh, that are not true. Um, there are people who are questioning whether our election law should allow this, but but that's typically been the case that we have even a wider interpretation of the First Amendment when it comes to elections than even in other periods and in, and in other areas. For example, uh, if this were a commercial uh, campaign and, and they did the same thing, uh, it would be much more likely to be found uh, illegal, but because it's it's an election act, uh, it's it's much more likely to be allowed. But even even though that first line is it seems to me is problematic uh, official Kerr County summons now and, and by the way this is tailored for the voter if you live in Austin you would get official Travis County summons or what have you uh, that would signal to me that this is a government actor summonsing me to some uh, official act it would seem that, that that in itself is directly misleading Yes. And, and that's absolutely the intent of this mailing. Uh, the intent is uh, for you to think that it's an official summons so that you open it up, even though it is highly deceptive, even though it is it is ethically question questionable as a matter of federal election law. I think this is that they've 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 walked the line. You know, it seems like I recall uh, Ted Cruz getting caught up in a in an earlier controversy uh, somewhat similar during the presidential campaign. Yeah, and in Iowa in, in 2016, Ted Cruz was sending out letters that identified how an individual had voted and how their neighbors had voted and their and their level of participation, uh, and it was set up to show that. Uh, uh, it, it indicated a voter fraud problem or a, a voter violation problem to the voter, uh, and it encouraged them to come out and vote in the Iowa caucuses uh, and to do so to improve their score on this voter um, score card that they had. And then if they did so, they would have a higher score after the election that they were going to follow up. Um, this this fits in with some social science research that shows that this type of social pressure really gets people to participate. But there is no actual voter score that, uh, you know, the government's keeping tabs on who's voting for, for whom, right? Yeah, no, no, not at all. It's a, it was, it was, again, it was a, uh, it, it was a deception in, in trying to encourage people to come out and vote and to get mobilized and to come to the caucuses and support, support crews. So it's legal for them to have this deception as long as it says Ted Cruz campaign for Senate. That's that sort of thing. Yeah, that, that's my understanding of the federal election law, and that allows them the out. There's a separate question about ethical, uh, and the voters should actually uh, weigh in on this uh, and, and decide whether this is something they're willing to support or not. Kirby Goydell is professor in the Department of Communication and the Public Policy Research Institute at Texas A&M University. 
Professor, thanks so much for speaking with us. We sure do appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Hello. Another high-stakes hearing for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh as the Senate committee announces hearings Monday for both Kavanaugh and Christine Ford, who has accused him of sexually assaulting her at a party when they were in high school Mm -hmm. in the 1980s. In a statement, Kavanaugh says the allegations are false. The Washington Post reports that Ford's allegation is corroborated with therapist therapist notes from several years ago, and now the Senate Judiciary Committee will hear from both of them before issuing a vote on whether to mm-hmm. recommend Kavanaugh sit on the highest court in the land. Many people watching on social media on our Facebook page, Jose Javier points out similar allegations against the president and worries that if Trump hasn't been shamed, why would the men on the committee listen to these complaints? Another listener, Morgan Hamilton, she says that since it happened when they were young and the boys were drunk, it will be ignored as a boys will be boys thing and not make a bit of difference when it comes to voting him onto the bench, not an outcome that she personally advocates for. You know, uh, it's interesting you say boys, and there was another individual, another boy, yeah, that has been part been of this. Point, yeah, he's been the point. We've seen some reporting about him. It would be interesting if he gets called up there, too. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't actually read a whole lot about it, but we'd love to know what you think of the latest twists and turns in this case. Tweet us at Texas Standard, or let us know what else is going on in your neck of the woods. Wells Dunbar will be back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. In just three weeks, the city of San Antonio saw the number of electric scooters on its streets go from 750 to more than 2,000. Now it's rolling out a six-month pilot program to regulate e-scooters if city council approves the measure next month. Other cities have considered bans as more and more scooters litter the sidewalks and become involved in accidents, a kind of public nuisance. But as Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports, scooters might turn out to be a boon for some Texas bicyclists. Abel Gonzalez is on one of his many weekly rides downtown. Let's wait to get in this lane here. We'll go into Scooter Central. Across from the Alamo, the Swell Cycle employee points at two young men on electric scooters going up Houston Street. The two men avoid stopping at a red light with a legally questionable maneuver. That's a classic move, absolutely. So they'll go straight from the street to the sidewalk to the street. It's fair to say that Gonzalez and many cyclists don't like scooters that much. It's hard to find somebody who, besides a tourist, who would say they're not annoying. But having cycled across San Antonio for more than 30 years, he loves a good bike lane. Now this is awesome here. Gonzalez rolls up Main Street in the well-marked bike lane with patches of bright green with a smile on his face. You feel a sense of, this is my space, and that's the car space. After a few short blocks, the lane ends, and Gonzalez is back among the cars. Take a ride up here and then we'll our way back. For years, San Antonio's struggled to build bike lanes. A 2011 city report said San Antonio had 80% less bike infrastructure than average American cities. After five years of spending around a million dollars and last year gaining 450 million in money for safer streets and sidewalks, many think it's going the right direction, but still has a long way to go. So to get more bike lanes, the cyclists may need to learn to love scooters. Scooters are waking a lot of people up to the car-centric design of city streets nationwide. Probably weren't using a bike, so there's 
more people using other mode. Scooter riders may become advocates asking for safer lanes, says Art Reinhardt, assistant director of the city's transportation and capital improvements department. In general, they're adding to a new mindset. We need to have safe facilities for things other than cars. Bike Texas Executive Director Robin Stallings wants protected bike lane networks in cities. But he's not sure this pressure from scooters will get it done. There's also uh, just as likely to be some pushback against this new technology. Scooter companies can be powerful allies in fighting for infrastructure, says Bike San Antonio's Janelle Sturbentz. Yeah, we reached out to Lime Bikes and uh, Jump Bike. They're very receptive and supportive of us. Sturbentz wants protected bike lanes down Broadway, and some scooter companies have endorsed the plan. In addition, Bird Scooter says it gives a dollar per scooter in a city back each day for better streets. A company, Lime, partnered with Bike Austin to do traffic safety classes. And in an email, they said they believe their scooters make people more receptive to bike or scooter lanes. At the busy street corner of Houston and St. Mary's downtown, more than a dozen scooters pass over the course of 20 minutes. Nearly all of them are on the sidewalk. I prefer to ride on the street. Andrew Flores lives and often works downtown for USAA. The young urban professional is what the city has been pushing for to create density downtown. Flores worries about safety and with good reason. 341 pedestrians were brought to San Antonio trauma centers after being hit by cars last year. 98 cyclists joined them after crashes. He sees the scooter trend as adding a lot of people to the fight for shared streets. Cyclists have always kind of been fighting their own fight. But I think now with, with scooters, you the cyclists kind of have a bigger crowd who's kind of fighting for those protections of, of shared space on the streets. It's too early to tell what impact scooters will have on San Antonio's roads, but it's obvious they're already changing the way a lot of people think. In San Antonio, I'm Paul Flav for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. It's inevitable. Many of the objects and institutions we rely on today will eventually fade from use. Consider the typewriter, or the milkman, or the subject of a story the Texas Standard's Michael Marks brings us today. So, Michael, uh, where does this start exactly? Starts in San Antonio in the early 20th century, <laughs> so a pretty noisy place. Sounds like. The city's growing, modernizing at this point. Uh -huh. Now, between 1910 and 1930, the population of San Antonio more than doubled. Mm -hmm. Here's Mariah Pfeiffer. She's a local historian in San Antonio. If you look at historic pictures of downtown, you see this incredible mashup of cars, horse carts, and trolleys, and pedestrians. It was a bustling place. But above all this noise, of all this progress, there was one sound you could hear above everything else. And that was the voice of Julius Myers, known as the last town crier in the United States. I always thought of town crier as kind of a medieval profession or something. How long did this guy hold on? Uh, he actually held on until about 1928. He hmm. was born in New York in 1868 to German immigrants, came to Texas, started a family and a grocery business in Luling. Mm -hmm. But then he got into advertising, moved to San Antonio, and there he became a town crier. Here's Mariah Pfeiffer again renowned for riding his horse through the streets and handing out flyers or calling out the news. 
He was impossible to miss. The man's nickname was Megaphone Myers for this big, booming voice. And he and his horse Tootsie would go up and down the streets in San Antonio wearing whatever costume was appropriate to advertise a baseball game or a produce stand or Joski's department store, for example. <laughs> you know, he'd give you the news of the day, too. He'd announce charitable events, things like that. And for about 15 years, he's this really beloved community figure. Hmm. But things change in 1926, where even in San Antonio, town criers... Apparently uh, had outlived their usefulness and were irritating the, uh, the general public a bit. So in December of 1926, San Antonio City Council issues a ban on town criers. And the culprits here, David, are two technological advances that you happen to be particularly fond of. Mm. The automobile and the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so as more cars filled the streets, drivers weren't too happy about a town crier slowing down traffic, and commercial radio gave businesses a more efficient way to advertise than one man on a horse downtown. So I guess that was it for Julius Myers, town crier, right? Almost. Not quite. Because he was such an institution, he did make a brief comeback. Hmm. People signed petitions, there were editorials supporting him in Texas newspapers, and in 1928, the city council relented. They allowed him to resume his town crying on two conditions. One, he could only advertise baseball games, <laughs> and two... His horse, Tootsie, had to remain in the barn. I see. So he only returned on a limited basis. And not for very long either. In fact, on this very day, September 18th in 1929, Myers died of heart failure at 62 years old. And in the U.S., the profession of town crier went with him. Wow. His death was national news, and papers printed letters like this one from a local philanthropist named E.B. Chandler. Uh, I typed a little bit of it out. Do, do you mind reading it? No, yeah, let's see here. Here goes. His voice, like the Alamo, can never be replicated. They talk about repairing the Alamo, but there is no occasion for repairing Julius's voice. It is as perfect now as it ever was. Wow, what a what a <laughs> eulogy. Well, I guess if San Antonians are comparing you to the Alamo, <laughs> you've certainly left your mark there. It, it, it seems like Julius Myers did that. America's last town crier who died on this day in 1929. Michael, amazing story. Thanks so much for bringing it to us. Sure thing, David. Twenty-nine minutes past the hour. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. The U.S. Senators from Texas will get to question U.S. Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh about sexual assault allegations he's facing. John Cornyn and Ted Cruz both sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. On Monday, they'll hear from Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford, who has accused him of sexually assaulting her at a party when they were in high school in the 1980s. Cornyn and Cruz each released statements yesterday, essentially saying both Ford and Kavanaugh deserve to address this issue. Kavanaugh has denied the allegations. An app a Houston web developer created is helping people in the Hurricane Florence ravaged Carolinas. Houston Public Media's Florian Martin reports. When Harvey hit over a year ago, Matthew Marchetti created Crowdsource Rescue, an app that connects helpers with those in need of help. Since then, the web developer has activated it for several other disasters, including in Mexico and the Philippines. 
Marchetti says it has to be adjusted according to the disaster. With Hurricane Florence, we knew it was going to be flooding. We knew it was going to be some water rescues as well as some large animal evacs. And we would ask people basically, like, what are your resources around that? Marchetti says during times like this, he works 16 or 17 hours a day. At last count, he says, the app has facilitated about 1,700 water rescues and wellness checks during Florence. In Houston, I'm Florian Martin. South Texas is getting a break from more than a week of heavy rains. The region has seen multiple rounds of showers and thunderstorms over the last 7 to 10 days. Just this past weekend, the coastal bent area was hit with about 10 inches of rain. Greg Hevener is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service in Corpus Christi. He says South Texas has gotten so much rain this month, the ground is saturated with water. Any additional rainfall that falls on top of a very, very wet ground it can't absorb it, much like a sponge. The sponge is already full. So all that water basically runs off across roadways, into the rivers, into the streams, can cause them to rise rapidly. Heavener says by Thursday or Friday, the area will likely see scattered showers and thunderstorms return. The adventures of Pete and Pete reach a climax today in the final round of a special election for Texas Senate District 19. Okay, references to iconic 90s Nickelodeon TV shows aside, voters will decide today whether Republican Pete Flores or Democrat Pete Gallego will replace convicted former state Senator Carlos Uresti. Flores is a former state game warden and Gallego is a former congressman and member of the Texas House. State Senate District 19 stretches from San Antonio to West Texas. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on what approved forms of photo ID they can bring to the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. My name is Joel Munoz, and I'm from Bernie, Texas. My first legitimate job at Walmart in Bernie, there was this manager and he was about five foot five, and he had this huge mustache. I mean, it covered, it covered his entire mouth. The man was wealthy because he started off at, at, at 16 at Walmart, and he bought stock all the way until he turned 40 when he retired. And we're all having this big, you know, dinner when he retired, and I'm sitting across from him, and I had just started, and I asked him, what is with the mustache? And he looked at me and he says, Joel, my first manager when I started out, just like you, said if I ever wanted to become a manager in a Walmart, I could not have a mustache. And everybody just went quiet. And then he says, and today I'm retiring with a mustache. <laughs> I said, you are my role model. <laughs> My name is Joel Munoz, I'm from Bernie, Texas, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. Ah, yes, Bernie, Texas. Coming up on 35 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time, I'm David Brown. Last month, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents raided Load Trail, a trailer factory in the northeast Texas town of Sumner. We talked about that a bit yesterday. They arrested almost 160 workers suspected of being undocumented. What happens next? Well, across Lamar County, that's what a lot of families are wondering at the moment. KERA's Stella Chavez visited one such family. 
Miguel Oliva Esquivel was outside at work when he heard a loud noise overhead. What's with the helicopter, he wondered. Four ICE agents were behind him. One of them told him, go inside. Esquivel, a welder, was one of 159 workers arrested at Load Trail that day. Most were sent to ICE detention centers in North Texas and Oklahoma. Esquivel was released after his family paid a $5,000 bond. Days after the arrest, Esquivel sits on a bench inside Iglesia Evangelica Philadelphia, a church in Paris, Texas. Some workers who were detained and their families have sought help at the church. Esquivel says he's worried about his wife and three adult children, especially his 26-year-old son with special needs. I'm the one who provides for the household, the one who buys everything for my children, the food, diapers, Esquivel says. The 62-year-old and his family came from Mexico City 21 years ago to escape gangs. They're undocumented. Two of their children have DACA status. That's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which allows undocumented children brought to the U.S. by a parent to stay and work. Saida Oliva, Esquivel's 28-year-old daughter, is heartbroken. Oliva's younger brother with special needs doesn't have DACA. If her dad's deported, her younger brother and mom will likely leave too. We've been here most half of my life here, 21 years. All my family is. And to know that we don't have a chance, I mean, it's not our fault our parents brought us here, it was to have a better life. The Mexican consulate has been helping families like Esquivel's. Francisco de la Torre, who leads the consulate in Dallas, says after the raid, his office deployed staff to interview workers sent to ICE detention facilities. The Mexican government, we do not encourage Mexicans to come here without documents to look for work. But we have the moral and the legal obligation to protect their legal rights, to protect their human rights. With no disregard of the legal status they have, they have human rights. Since the immigration raid, Oliva says some immigrants in Paris and Northeast Texas are afraid. Her parents ask her to run errands for them. De La Torre says he's heard similar stories. The word is fear. Many people are in fear. Many people are thinking that ICE is still knocking doors there. Uh, we know that's not true. But people tend to believe what they hear in the streets. Despite the raid, Miguel Oliva Esquivel has no regrets. He says he came to the U.S. for his children. His daughter is hopeful. I know we did it. I guess our parents did something wrong, but they're not here to hurt anyone. They're just here to better our lives and have a better future. Saida Oliva says she prays the judge who hears her dad's case is compassionate and lets him stay in the U.S. In Dallas, I'm Stella Chavez for the Texas Standard. And Stella will be following Esquivel's path through the immigration system. He's the first, his first court date is tomorrow, that's uh, Wednesday, in Dallas. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
It's Texas Standard Time on a Tuesday. I'm David Brown. Thanks for being with us. In this age of Twitter-fried toxic politics, it's interesting to try to imagine how historians might someday look back on this era in American history. To call it turbulent seems almost understatement, at least through our current lens. But history itself may help us understand these times we're living in, and that is perhaps one reason that the new book by historian Doris Kearns Goodwin is getting so much attention right now. Its title alone may leave some listeners pining for another era. Leadership in Turbulent Times. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the author, joins us. Welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You're looking back at four U.S. presidents you've written about in the past, uh, Lincoln, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, LBJ. I know you've been working on this book before the 2016 election, however. I've seen some of your other interviews elsewhere. Uh, What was it that made you think the time's right to talk about presidential leadership when you started on this? Well, even five years ago when I started the book, it was clear that in Washington there was a broken political system. I mean, neither party could get a major piece of legislation through without the other party being on the opposite side. They still were beginning to view each other as traitors rather than just simply opponents. And there seemed to be a feeling that the kind of leadership that we had in the past, which could make citizens feel they were part of a a whole, and the country as a whole was splitting into different sections. And then, of course, it just got exacerbated by the current moment when there seems to be an absence of the kind of leadership that these four men provided. So I feel in a certain sense, if we can go back to those times, Mm -hmm. we often... People say to me, are we living in the worst of times? And I say, no, just remember what it must have been like for Lincoln when he took yeah. over and the Civil War is about to break out, the Depression, the Great World War II. It gives you some reassurance to know that we got through those times before. It may not seem like we're going to come through this one, but we surely can. Well, it's, it's interesting that you should mention Lincoln because through the lens of history, again, you think of Lincoln as a uniter. But if you look back at that period immediately before his election— the nation was incredibly divided, and at least half the country saw Lincoln as a divider. No question. And in fact, even when we think of our media environment today, and we talk about how divided it is with different cable networks, in Lincoln's time, the way you got your news was through a partisan newspaper that you would subscribe to. So if it's the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and you've subscribed to the Republican newspaper, they'll say, Lincoln was so great. You know, he was carried out on the shoulders of his friends in great triumph. You read the Democratic newspaper, and they say he was so terrible, embarrassed he fell on the floor, and they had to drag him out of the room. <laughs> right. So there was that sense, you're absolutely right, of the North and the South, of different parts of the country feeling very different about the central issue of the day. So we've been through that, that's for sure. But even even if you take it to FDR, and you think about, say, um, uh, 1935, 36, the court packing uh, controversies, uh, that sort of thing. Again, we were a very polarized place, were we not? We were indeed. I mean, at the beginning, when the Depression first hit FDR's inauguration, he was able to bring about a common sense of working on the problems through the 100 days. But by the end of the 100 days, when he started to have systemic reform, then you began to see that split form. So it's important to remember these things because we think sometimes now that we're in a situation where we can't get something done and we need some changes, I think, in our political system. But as FDR said, problems created by man can be changed by man. It's not like these things are out of our control right now, it's, although it feels that way sometimes. So, so how do presidents provide leadership as you define it? Well, I think what it depends upon is they have to be fit for the time that they're in. I mean, think of LBJ. I mean, he was a legislative wizard. He comes into the presidency after JFK's assassination, and he knows that 
everything's been stuck in the Congress. I mean, again, we think about this only happening now, nothing getting through Congress. There hadn't been a major piece of JFK's legislation that had gotten through. And because he knew how to deal with the Congress, that very first night after JFK is, is dead, he starts talking, I'm going to get a tax bill through first, then I'm going to get civil rights, then I'm going to get voting rights, and then I'm going to get Medicare, and then I'm going to get aid to education. And he was able, because he knew those congressmen, he called them at 6 in the morning, he called them at noon, he even called the senator at 2 a.m. Now, I hope I didn't wake you up. And the senator said, no, I was just lying here looking at the ceiling, <laughs> hoping my president would call. <laughs> so he had the skills that were needed at that time. I mean, he's still the most interesting, formidable character I think I've ever met. And similarly, FDR had the skills of being able to talk to people on the radio with that voice that allowed them to feel he was their friend. He was talking to them in their living yeah. room. Um, Teddy Roosevelt had the skill to deal with the Industrial Revolution era and channel all that negative energy that surrounded people feeling like the country was changing in ways they didn't like into moderate reform that took away some of the worst aspects of the industrial order. So it, it depends on the, the person being having a set of skills that fit the needs of the time, and all four of those did. But what if, I mean, it's interesting because you talk about the needs of the time, and it seems like in some sense you can say that the crisis, uh, which brings about the need for leadership, is what makes these presidents leaders. And yet there are a lot of people listening, thinking about modern times and, and thinking, what if the crisis is the purported leader? What I mean, what if instead of, 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 of someone responding to the crisis, what we're talking about is one that's created by the president uh, himself? Yeah, that's a very different situation. You're right. In all these other cases, there's a real crisis in the country. And, for example, Buchanan wasn't ready for it in the way Lincoln was. But we did have, before even President Trump, we have a polarized country. We have people in one section or one class or one race looking on the other as the other rather than as a fellow citizen in many ways. And that's the one thing that Teddy Roosevelt said would be the rock of democracy would founder if that should happen. But then the crisis can be exploited or made worse as a result of the leadership that's there or the absence of the kind of leadership that heals things and brings people together. You know, if I'm not mistaken, you've written about all of these figures in the past, and this is this seems to me almost like a greatest hits collection, but obviously you're focusing very much on this aspect of leadership, and I sense that at the end of these profiles, you're sort of sending a message about what the takeaway is. Have we lost the, the, the lessons of history? Is that something you're trying to get back to? Or, or well, am I missing? what I feel so passionate about right now is that we have to remember what genuine leadership looked like. You know, persons who had humility, um, who had empathy, who created teams that worked together and they shared credit with the team and they shouldered blame. Persons who knew how to control their emotions and not let anger slip out who were able to communicate in ways that people felt made them feel part of the country as a whole. If we don't remember those kinds of standards of leadership, then we might get caught in this norm that we're living in as if this is what we're going to have from now on. And that's what history can do. It allows you to imagine. If you can't imagine a better time, and this way by looking in the past, we can imagine harder times, but they were better times in the end, then maybe it mobilizes us to do what we need to do to find the kind of leaders and to be active as citizens to be able to change our situation now. Boy, you, you sound awfully optimistic. I guess I have to be. That's my temperament. And I think, you know, in the end, if you lived through the Civil War, would you have ever thought it would end up in such a way that even with all those dead, the country was made a much better country without slavery? If you'd been there in the early years of the Depression when the banks had collapsed and you can't even get your money out of the bank and you don't have a job and people are wandering around the streets, people thought the future of capitalism was grim at that point. 
um, or in the early days of the civil rights movement when there was violence in the air and, and Kennedy had been assassinated, would you have thought that civil rights and voting rights and aid to education and Medicare would all get through in the next 18 months? So mm-hmm. things turn. You know, I guess the older you get, and I'm older now, the more you see that things come in turn. And I think America's strength is not as, as weakness as we sometimes think. Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Her new book, Leadership in Turbulent Times, is out today. Uh, Doris, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's a real honor and privilege. Thank you very much. I'm glad we could talk. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. As one of the biggest states in the nation, what happens in Texas can have an outsized influence on what happens elsewhere. And seldom is this more apparent than when it comes to what's taught in public schools. After all, publishers eager to sell textbooks want to make sure they can do it in the Lone Star State, right? Well, now, one of the biggest school districts in Texas is adding a new feature to its curriculum, covering kids from kindergarten to high school, focusing on the state's Latino-Latina heritage. Max Krokmal teaches history at TCU, and he's chair of the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies there. Professor, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thanks. Thanks for having me. First thing that strikes me is that uh, we're talking here about an independent school district, uh, not waiting for the State Board of Education to get around to this issue. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so s- local school districts um, often supplement the state standards. They're, the state publishes their guidelines called the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills, or TEKS, and districts you know, look at that and, and say, how can our teachers best implement this? And then, so they, they add some additional guidelines of their own. So that's not new. What's new in this case is that Fort Worth ISD is, is building a, a, a curriculum overlay specifically focused on Latino studies. Mm-hmm. And, and, and give us an example of what students have missed by not having this curriculum, as you see it? I mean, the, the curriculum from beginning to end, you know, has come to reflect sort of outdated social science and historical and, and literary knowledge when it comes to Latinos and even other commonplace events. And so what we're trying to do is to make it come up to speed with where the research has been in the last several decades. So one example is in, in World War II, when um, Mexican-Americans and other Latinos served in the United States uniform in the United States military, they served valiantly. They, they, they served at the highest rate of any ethnic group and were the, the most decorated group proportionate to their numbers. And, and despite that, they returned home to, in many cases, intense discrimination uh, directed toward Latinos. In Texas, uh, one GI, Felix Longoria, he was killed at the tail end of the war. It took several years for his remains to be returned to his hometown of Three Rivers, Texas, in South Texas. Uh, and there, the Anglo funeral home director uh, refused to accept his body. And so he wasn't able to be buried alongside his family, which which led to a really a national incident um, to get uh, Felix Longoria properly recognized and buried. And he ultimately ended up in Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, so it does an important work of, of dispelling the myth that Latinos are brand new to America and instead shows their long presence um, and their contributions, their struggles mm-hmm. and their work to improve their condition. So, of course, one of the things that stands out is that this curriculum is covering a pretty broad range of ages here, from from kindergarten all the way up to high school. And those stories you mentioned, obviously, uh, are fascinating. But 
but may or may not be age appropriate in certain cases. How do you go about putting together an entire curriculum that, that can cover uh, this, this range of students? Yeah, so we're working with a large team of, of researchers, of scholars here at TCU from a variety of fields, including a couple of education scholars who will be doing precisely that, helping uh, those of us with more sort of subject expertise place our work into the appropriate grades for primary and for secondary. And we have specialists in each of those areas. And of course, the district's curriculum staff will also be working with us toward that end. But, you know, there, there are different lessons for different levels. So Fort Worth ISD recently approved a, a Cesar Chavez Dolores Huerta holiday. Um, and so one of the lessons in, in, say, first grade could be, you know, who is Dolores Huerta? Why mm -hmm. do we celebrate her? Mm -hmm. And that could be incorporated along with some of the other standards that have to do with with holidays. Yeah. Uh, you know, you think about Fort Worth Independent School District, 62 percent Hispanic, as I understand it. And, you know, you see similar figures all over Texas. In fact, some sometimes uh, those percentages run much uh, higher. Where do you see this curriculum going? Are you thinking toward expanding beyond Fort Worth? Well, you know, we're starting out with this this contract that we've been awarded and the work we want to do here in our local community. Uh, but it would certainly be my hope that other districts would see what we're doing here and, and, and want to emulate it or reach out to us for help, uh, that the State Board of Education as a whole would see, you know, why it's important to make Latino studies not just an elective, but uh, an integral part of how we teach social studies and, and even language arts and other fields. So, yeah, we hope it inspires uh, similar action in other places. And as I understand it, this is going to be rolled out next fall in the 2019-2020 school year. Max Krockmall is one of the leading figures behind this new curriculum. He teaches history at TCU, and he's chair of the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies there. Professor, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. Joining us once again in the studio, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. What are Texans talking about on this uh, Tuesday? Well, we're hearing from our friends and listeners about a lot of things, including that disturbing story at the top of the show about the Border Patrol agent uh, confessed to killing four people. Yeah, uh, authorities calling it a serial killer. Yeah, disturbing, very disturbing stuff. Listener Morgan uh, says that one thing that should be discussed about this incident is a big push a while back to get more Border Patrol agents and whether it potentially led to some iffy people getting those jobs and what we can do to weed those people out even at this late date. Obviously, uh, a disturbing story that has captured yeah. a lot of people's imagination. I think the elephant in the room and something that's not uh, directly uh, yeah. focused on in a lot of the reporting is the animus that a lot of uh, people feel toward uh, immigration and customs enforcement and, of mm -hmm. course, the Border Patrol as well. Uh, and and that's uh, uh, this person is seen uh, uh, as, in a way, probably, uh, perhaps by some, as illustrative well, of... Uh, but, but yeah, of I, course... I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it's obviously a politically uh, loaded topic. And issue, so, and so it is difficult to separate that uh, from the facts at hand. I'll tell you what's another charged issue, uh, although not nearly as serious. That story about deceptive campaign mailers, people just cannot get enough this is of the Ted talking Cruz about campaign this story. And no. the official summons. Uh, yes. Letter. And we have like 80 comments on our Facebook page about this. It's just kind of crazy. Folks are chiming in via Twitter as well. Philip White says that Cruz doesn't seem to think voters can handle policy discussion. If he respected Texans, he would not run on tofu, hair dye, and nicknames and would not try to dupe people into giving him money. Meanwhile, Marsha Wolf, she has a different perspective. She says, Oh my gosh, really? Are these candidate all these candidates that send out mailers trying to make them openable? Give me a break. Mine goes straight into the recycle bin. Are people really so gullible? Hmm. 
Well, I know, no, I, it's, it is. But if you, I mean, if you have seen the letter, if you've seen pictures of the letter, yeah. uh, and it says official summons, do you just, do you not open know. that letter? You know, uh, we just, uh, we just moved into a new home. And so yeah, it's like, right. you uh, you know, when you do that, there's all sorts of, you know, public records you fill out. And so you get all this stuff Absolutely. in the mail, yeah. like, you know, official Confirming mortgage confirmation. It's like, right. you, t- you always have to do that double, double, uh, double look there. So lots of people uh, talking about that. Uh, interesting perspective here, Les Jacko Bass. He says that he hopes this brings, is brought up in the debates between Cruz and O'Rourke because he would like to hear Cruz's answer how this is not deceptive it's hard to imagine it won't be i think there were three debates set yeah. one for three yeah and so San Antonio, that's coming Houston, up i Dallas. think on friday uh yeah two debates uh, or, or two debates focused on uh, domestic policy mm-hmm. one on uh, foreign policy yeah. so lots more to talk about here's, here's a couple more surprising terms uh that are trending on twitter uh mushroom uh mario kart mushroom? What? Uh, no no oh you know what i hear the music i don't think we have time to get into this thankfully uh, what is that about i am not uh, yeah you're not gonna go there huh all right leaving us all to wonder you can always find out the latest in news at texasstandard.org but time's over for the big broadcast now we're going to be back here tomorrow and we hope you will join us On behalf of Mr. Dunbar here and the rest of the Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Tuesday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and St. David's Foundation. Public Radio International.